Today, we'll be uh, reading from Mark chapter 1, the verses 1 to 8, but in connection with that, we're going to read a little bit of background in the prophecy that's mentioned in Mark chapter 1. So we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 40, the verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 40, the verses 1 to 5. And you'll be able to find that on page 828 of your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, the verses 1 to 5. Comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We'll now turn together to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, the verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came, baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea, and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So far the word of God. Congregation loved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, especially uh, you boys and girls today, do you know what a herald is? Not the name Harold, but a Harold. A Harold is a man who goes into a town ahead of a king and announces, says to all of the people in the town that the king is coming. Often this Harold 
would be a man wearing fine clothes, very nice clothes. He would be a man who would be able to speak in a loud voice, and he would proudly announce the king who is soon to be here. Everybody would be scrambling in the town to get ready, and they would put on their best clothes, and they would line the streets so that they could get a glimpse of this coming king. Now, if you were to look at the way that they describe John the Baptist, would you think that he was a herald? You probably wouldn't think he was much of a herald at all. He was a man who was wearing clothes that were made out of camel's hair. And he tied his outer clothes to his waist with a leather belt. He ate locusts. Locusts are like big grasshoppers. Locusts are still eaten by some people today in this part of the world, but only the poorest of the poor. He ate wild honey. But again, that was only free food that they could find. So the picture that you get with John the Baptist is a a picture of a man who is living in the wilderness, dressed in rough clothes, in the poorest of clothes, eating what he can freely get his hands on. The picture that we get with John the Baptist is not the picture of an earthly herald at all. It's not the picture of a person representing a great king. It's a picture of a very poor man. A man who is completely devoted to his message. But just because we wouldn't see him as a herald, it doesn't mean that other people wouldn't see him as one. You see, it all depended on what kind of herald you were looking for. Were you looking for a herald who had come to announce an earthly king? Were you looking for a herald who was going to go out and tell you all to put on your best clothes because he was coming? Then yes, he would not be the kind of herald that you're looking for. That being said, if you were a Jew who was looking carefully, then you would begin to understand what kind of herald he truly was. We'll look at that today under the following theme, a herald in the wilderness. And we'll see, first of all, the herald himself, and second, the message of that herald, and finally, the comfort of that message. John the Baptist, as you may know from the Gospel of Luke, was the miraculous son of a temple priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. He was miraculous because when he was born, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old, far past the age when they could expect to have a son. An angel had appeared to Zechariah telling him that the miraculous conception and birth of his son would be a sign that this boy would grow up to be very special and have a very special task. Mark, of course, doesn't tell us any of this backstory. Mark is a very brief gospel moving from one event to the next with a word immediately, time and time again in his gospel. If you have your own Bible, take some time to count the number of times that you find that word immediately in this gospel. Maybe go through underlining it or or marking it. It gives you the idea that his gospel is one of haste. 
sharing an urgent message that he can't wait to get out. And so he's not going to waste time. But he is going to focus on what's the most important for his gospel. The gospel of Mark is a gospel that announces a coming king. A king with power. He's going to focus on who John the Baptist is and how that would be relevant to Jesus Christ as the coming king, that king of power. And it's for that reason that he brings our attention to what John the Baptist is wearing and eating. That seems like an odd thing to focus on for someone who is writing with such haste, doesn't it? For someone who only wants to bring forward the most important things. But his clothes and his food are what he focuses on, for good reason. Any other person who is saying wild things, wearing the poorest of clothes and eating only what he could get his hands on in the wilderness would quickly be brushed off as someone who is crazy. In the ancient world, just as much as today, you only have to think about the demon-possessed man named Legion from Luke chapter 8. He was left outside of the city. He was avoided at all costs. People were afraid of him. But John was not treated this way. We read in verse 5 that rather all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that every single person went, but it's a picture. Crowds and crowds came to hear what he said. And there's the key. It was the message that he brought that was emphasized by what he wore that made them listen so carefully. John was dressed as one of the Old Testament prophets from ancient times, specifically the prophet Elijah. Back in Israel's early history, in the days of their kings, Elijah the prophet was so recognizable by his clothing That in 2 Kings 1 verse 8, all that had to be described was the garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the response immediately immediately was, it's Elijah the Tishbite. There were so many similarities between John and Elijah that John the Baptist was asked later in John 1 verse 21, are you Elijah? Now, What the crowds meant at that time was, are you literally the reincarnated flesh and blood Elijah from ancient times? And John said no. Even so, John's clothes were meant to mark him out as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We read in Malachi 4 verses 5 to 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. John himself was not a reincarnated version of Elijah, and yet he was the one who was coming, who was sent by God in the spirit and power of Elijah, as the Gospel of Luke describes him. Luke 1 verse 17. And this meant that John, although not flesh and blood Elijah, was still the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi's words. His words were that of the one who was sent out with an announcement before the coming of the king. His words were calling all men to repentance 
which is what's described by that prophecy in turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers lest they strike the earth with a curse. And he did exactly that in verse 4 of our passage today, Mark 1. Baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission, that is, forgiveness of sins. John's clothing and his message marked him out as the last of the Old Testament prophets of God. And that marked him in a, as a very different kind of herald for a very different kind of king, but a herald that everyone could recognize. What John wore and ate, how he acted and what he said showed that he was this prophet from God. Not just any prophet, but John the Baptist was the new Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist was, in the words of the Old Testament prophecy that's quoted here, the messenger before your face. He was the herald before your face. Your face? Whose face? God's face. The you in the Old Testament context of this prophecy is God himself. In Mark 1, though, it points back to the person referred to in chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is meant to draw our attention to who exactly Jesus is. So you are meant to translate this prophecy in the context of Mark 1 as, Behold, I send my herald John to run ahead of the Son of God himself. And who John is, namely the coming Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, who John is will confirm the King, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, who is coming into the world. God who took on flesh. John is the one who will prepare the way before Jesus. This man, robed, clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt tied around his waist, who ate locusts and wild honey, he will prepare the way before Jesus. And how will he do that? He'll do it by being, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He'll do it by exposing our spiritual barrenness. And he shares that message both by where he preaches and by what he preaches, which brings us to the second thing that we see in our passage, the message of the herald. So what's so important about the where of where he preaches Well, this is because the where is important to the message of repentance itself. In Isaiah, we see, we read that it's a message that comes from the wilderness. And sure enough, we see John preaching from the wilderness. There's a reason for that. The wilderness throughout Scripture was seen as a metaphor, which is to say a word picture The reason for this was that at the time of Isaiah's prophecy in particular, much of the land of the people of God was a wilderness. 
And yes, it was a wilderness due to the invading armies and due to the exile, the fact that people were taken out, they couldn't care for the land anymore, and the destruction that the marching armies had, had wreaked as they came through there. But the land was also a spiritual wilderness due to the fact that they had gone astray, that the people as a whole had left God behind. Yet, even so, though facing all that devastation and destruction, the prophet Isaiah promises this, God will send them a voice in that wilderness. John Calvin describes God's promise through Isaiah with these beautiful words. He will send to the people, though apparently ruined, ministers of consolation. At the same time, he anticipates an objection which might have been brought forward. You do indeed promise consolation, but where are the prophets? For we shall be in a wilderness. And whence shall this consolation come to us? He therefore testifies that the wilderness shall not hinder them from enjoying their consolation. Isaiah testifies that the wilderness will not hinder them from enjoying that consolation, end quote. After Isaiah and a flurry of other prophets, there was 400 years of silence, 400 years in which there was no word from God. And all God's people had was the promise of a comforting voice. But they were in the middle of this wilderness, this spiritual wilderness and a wilderness of silence from the voice of God as well. Would God be silent forever? After 400 years of silence, of dwelling in the wilderness of their own making, a voice came. That voice which told them of the fact that the wilderness would not hinder them from enjoying the consolation of the Lord. A voice which came to them in the wilderness itself. And it's with that background that we come to the message itself that's brought by the voice. Now, the message of the herald is pretty simple. John is the herald whose voice is crying in the wilderness here, and his message is this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. What those ten words are is a summary of what John preached. Not its entirety, but it's a powerful summary all the same. But what's actually meant by those words? Prepare the way. In the ancient world, much would have been done to prepare the way for a king who was coming to visit. We talked about putting on fine clothes earlier and the people getting dressed up in their best to receive the king, but there would be more to it than that. This also involved making the roads flat and straight and the town that received him beautiful. It's a humbling before the king and a recognition that must much is done to prepare. You see a similar thing in some third world cultures today. A number of years ago, I was in Indonesia and we went into the mountains with a preaching team and the first hour or two, heading into the interior of the island that we were on that journey, uh, when, when we were on that journey, we were on some beautiful roads, roads just like we find here in North America. However, once we passed a certain village, the road went from perfect to terrible. Sections of it were more pothole than road. And at one point, the only passable section of the road was about the size of a motorcycle tire. Travel slowed down significantly after that. 
What happened? Well, it turned out that a governor came to visit that village. And in preparation for his arrival, the whole stretch of road from the island's capital to that one small village in the middle of the hills there was paved in preparation for his arrival. Every pothole was lifted up, every bump was made low to make his travels on that road as smooth as possible. This is the picture that's painted in our passage today. The removal of barriers, the preparation for the coming king. What does that look like? Well, with John the Baptist, we can see the outcome in the following verses. Verse 4, first repentance, and then verse 5, the need for confession. And all of that was wrapped up in that public act of baptism before a crowd, which made it a baptism of repentance for the remission or Forgiveness of sins. Now, this was, you have to understand, different from Jesus' baptism later. John's baptism of repentance was a public declaration, but it had no power in itself. It was just a simple public confession of sin and a commitment to change. Paul himself affirms this in Acts 19, verse 4, saying, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. It was an outward symbol and a public promise on your part of what repentance means. To change your mind, but not just to change your mind, but to go in a new direction. But here's the problem. Our own human nature The crookedness of the pathway of our own hearts has the tendency to skirt around the swamps of our own sin. It turns a blind eye towards the potholes of our own behaviors. It excuses what we do as, that's just my personality. Or, it's the result of what someone else did to me. Or, I'm just a work in progress. Or, it's just this one person that I have an issue with. But as we go back and forth, winding round and round, this way and that, it completely misses the point with its wandering path. To make straight what was crooked is to straighten the pathway of the king to the heart of my problems, namely me. To open wide the road so that I might freely expose my sinful heart before the king. Taking down all barriers to his work. All personal defenses that we put in place. Saying, well, it's not really me. I must make straight what was crooked. Make the rough places a plain. Clear the way for the work of my redeemer king. And that involves no more skirting around my own issues, but taking the time to look into my heart, my own sinful inclinations, my own shortcomings, in the light of Scripture. That's what John would have been doing when he preached repentance. He would have been preaching the Scriptures, and as a prophet, it came with the power of the anointing of God himself. The people listening to him were cut to the heart, It's summarized in verse 5 that the crowds came out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. But in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, the verses 10 to 14, we're told what this actually looked like. The people 
asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And he said to them, Don't intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. There was no more of looking at one's own situation, but having been cut to the heart, they repented before the Lord. And they not only wanted a baptism that showed their desire to change, but the Holy Spirit impressed on their heart the need for direct responses to the question, how do I go about that change? Where do I go? God worked powerfully through John's proclamation of the Word. And as we come before the Word of God ourselves time after time and our sin is exposed in our personal devotions, our family devotions, or in the sermons that we hear from Sunday to Sunday, we too should seek to be prayerfully open to the convicting Word of the Spirit, asking Him that He might cut us to the heart and lead us towards a need for turning and change that he might expose the barriers that we throw up and the excuses that we throw up. But simple personal commitment to turning is not enough, is it? It's not even enough if we put people in our lives to whom we've made these public professions of, of change. We know how often we have fallen short and we continue to fall short. And when we look at ourselves and we see that it's so deeply ingrained and we don't throw up these excuses anymore, we can see for ourselves a long path and falling back again and again. We can't stop with just a simple commitment to turning and change. But praise God, neither does John the Baptist. Rather, John the Baptist, our herald for today, leads us to the message of the coming king. This brings us to our third point, the comfort of the message. If you were to stop with the herald's message of simply preparing the way, of simply exposing what's uh, in your own heart, challenging yourself on this, coming before God and listening to his word and seeking for the Holy Spirit to, to, to show those barriers that are in your lives, you would be simply overwhelmed. But the news is good. Yes, it's good to be aware of our own sins, to recognize our excuses, challenge ourselves and our excuses, and to be cut to the heart as God exposes us by his word. But we don't dwell there in our fallenness. We don't live there in our shortcomings, our sins. We need the comfort of not just a temporary change, but an eternal change of knowing God has a place for us and God gives us the comfort in his message to his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Having acknowledged our sin and having taken responsibility for the damage that we've 
caused and the excuses that we've made pointing to our character, our situation, or whatever else it might be. We are now pointed to our Savior. And here we come to realize this message in all of its beauty and glory. We can't prepare the way ultimately. In fact, it wasn't, if it wasn't for God exposing our hearts and convicting us by His Spirit, we wouldn't even have the desire to. We fall short. And so instead, God says, comfort, comfort my people. Instead, our hearts are turned to the one who is the way, the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. When you open your heart to look at yourself in this way, when you recognize your own excuses and your own patterns, you don't remain and dwell there. You're exposing your hearts for a reason. You're exposing them because the Redeemer King is coming. You face that short-term pain in coming to grips with who you are for the reward of long, for the reward of, of joy that lies ahead. And in service of that gospel message, it's helpful to look at how Isaiah lets it unfold, how Isaiah speaks of the pathway of our God more broadly in our prophecies, and how that ties into what John is doing here as he baptizes and then announces. For the people of God, we see that confession begin in Isaiah 33, verse 8. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The damage and the destruction and the misery is all laid out. The picture of damage and destruction to highways is the picture of that spiritual wasteland, of the wilderness that Israel has become. And it's the result of the broken covenant. Man breaking down the relationship between himself and God. But Isaiah doesn't remain there. Now look, Isaiah 35, verses 8 to 10. In keeping with that imagery of chaos and destruction in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, the highways that were laid waste, God then lays out a new promise in Isaiah 33, verse 8 and following. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. One commentator writes this, the unclean shall not travel through it. The idea of a righteous remnant that returns to Zion is implied by the fact that this highway is named as sacred, the way of holiness. Those who are ritually unclean can't travel along this route. Yet this imagery gives hope its ultimate fulfillment points to the future state of Zion under the Messiah's rule, where all who inhabit Zion are called holy, are called clean. The way of holiness is opened up, and the redeemed of the Lord 
shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. So we come to God confessing that we need salvation. We hear the call to make straight in the desert a highway. And when we come with that heart, that heart which God himself has given us, we see that he is the one who makes in the wilderness of our hearts a highway. Jesus Christ enters into the world. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Who will be holy? John's baptism is only one of repentance. That baptism won't make you holy. It's only one that you come to God and say, I am a wreck. I'm a sinful, miserable wreck. I'm not holy. I'm lost. Yet here's the amazing thing. That while John can only baptize with water, he's prophesying of the coming Messiah. The one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. The one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire because it is a purifying baptism. And it's purifying because the Holy Spirit is the one who joins us by faith to that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one he came into the world to give. A sacrifice that's paid for all of our sins. And this sacrifice shall result in our ransom, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. As we look forward to Christmas Day, remember that. And listen to the message of the herald. This Christmas season, listen to the forerunner of the king. Open God's word. Pray that the spirit would open you up by it and cut you to the heart. Throw out all of your own excuses about how it's your character, how it's just who you are, how it's the other person's fault. And clear the way there. This Christmas season, become, in the words of Acts chapter 9, a follower of the way. The way, the truth, and the life. Come this Christmas once again and see the coming Savior who redeems and ransoms you, who is the highway in the wilderness, leading to the gates of the eternal city, the highway of holiness where the redeemed of the Lord shall walk. Amen.